Um, so I think, yeah, I'd like to um, create a warmer, wider welcome, um, and not just for one part of you, but uh, I'd like to welcome all parts of you here. So your gender identity, your race, your sexuality, ethnicity, nationality, physical ability, religion. Um, I just, I hope that you feel that you can show up here in uh, whatever intersectional identities uh, you want to show up with. Um, and I also want to note that in terms of my conventional identities, I'm white, racialized, cisgendered woman, heterosexual, middle-class, Buddhist. So uh, I'm speaking from a pretty narrow viewfinder with a lot of privilege. So if anything I say in our meetings together, generally and tonight, of course, if anything I say doesn't land well for you or feels off in some way or causes harm, um, you are so welcome to tell me about that um, if you want to. You don't have to, of course, but uh, you can do that during our discussion at the end or send me an email afterwards. And I really welcome your feedback as a gift. Um, and so some, um, uh, an offering on uh, some guidance on how to practice as you listen to the teachings tonight, and this applies to any time you listen to the Dharma, um, is that I suggest that you allow your meditation practice to continue through my talk tonight, such that you're mindful of your experience of listening, of your body, of your breath, of your mind, as you hear me speaking right now. Uh, so rather than just being fixated on the content of my words, your attention uh, widens to include your experience. So there might be things you notice that you like and you notice, oh, pleasant or curiosity in the mind or enthusiasm, or maybe you feel disappointed or bored or tired. Um, and just noticing that meeting whatever arises with kindness um, is just as wholesome as meeting a pleasant state. So, uh, so our welcoming practice isn't just for our conventional identities, it's it's also for whatever arises in our mind and heart. So this is a practice that we can take, uh, take anywhere with us. Um, and hopefully it provides some guidance about, uh, about listening, listening to Dharma talks. Um, so today, this evening, I'd like to talk about fear um, and particularly in light of the recent violence that's been happening. Um, there have been, there's been so much violence um, and as I'm sure all of you know, uh, what happened in Atlanta a week ago, um, where eight people were killed and six of them uh, were women of Asian descent. Um, and that um, highlights for me something particularly concerning, um, which is just the uh, that Asian American and Pacific Islanders um, have been targeted for so many hate incidences in the past year in the US. Um, I believe it's almost 4,000. And um, there have been over 700 attacks in the, in the Bay Area, um, uh, which is just so um, incredibly disturbing that these acts are being perpetrated against uh, friends and family and Dharma sisters and brothers. Um, and so, of course, this, uh, this is not new, um, AAPI, Asian American and Pacific Islanders, uh, not, to uh, not to mention uh, Black, Indigenous, people of color, 
these communities have been carrying the weight of racism uh, for hundreds of years. So of course this is not new and it's um, just more present right now. Uh, so I realize there are myriad responses to this, uh, anger, sadness, numbness, resentment, um, all totally valid responses. Um, and in this, this sea of hurt that so many of us are feeling, one particular response came to mind for me. Um, and uh, when I see the violence uh, taking place, I see such a fundamental threat to one's sense of safety. Um, so that's where the theme for tonight really came from. How can we promote safety for ourselves and others? So safety internally and externally. So for the first half of the evening, I'll be talking about cultivating safety internally, um, working with fear and fearlessness. And then for the second half, um, safety externally. How can we make ourselves a refuge for others? So the first, um, I'm walking down a trail and I see a snake and I have a, a big feeling of fear. And then I realize, oh wait, it's actually just a crooked branch that looks like the snake. Uh, so there's actually no threat there, uh, but the body responds with the same, the, the same feeling of fear. So we might call this a paper tiger. Um, Rick Hansen, uh, neuroscientist and author of Buddha's Brain, I'm going to read you something that he wrote. Um, he says, Mother Nature has made us highly threat reactive. She wants us to be alarmed at a thousand paper tigers in order to avoid missing a single real one about to pounce. This paper tiger paranoia makes us routinely overestimate threats and underestimate opportunities and resources. As a result, by perceiving a tiger when there's only a paper tiger that is no actual threat, we, over, we overreact to others, feel needless anxiety and anger, muzzle honest self-expression, stay guarded and superficial in relationships, and play small in life. So uh, I think that really speaks to um, how much fear can really own us and legislate our experience, um, uh, even if there isn't a, a true physical threat there. So that's the first type of fear is kind of a paper tiger, uh, no actual threat, but the fear response is present. The second type is I walk down a trail and I see a snake and it's a real snake. It's not a branch, it's a snake. Um, or in Rick Hansen's example, in the language of uh, tigers, it's a real tiger. Uh, so if I'm walking down the trail, I see a snake or a tiger, um, that's not the moment to go, oh, I feel my breath. And I'm just going to sit with this fear, feel the nervousness, feel the anxiety, um, uh, breathe as I watch the boa constrictor slowly approach and wind its way around my torso. Um, that's obviously not the practice, right? So, so the body's fear system is brilliant and it's actually working very well in that moment if it tells you to get the hell out of there. Um, so our, our work is discerning in any moment, is this fear that I'm feeling illuminating an actual threat? And for those in a situation of actual threat, 
uh, let that ancient survival system support you in saying staying safe. Um, our safety system is so important, it literally keeps us alive. So um, one consequence of having an experience of meeting a real tiger uh, is that often afterwards, we see even more paper tigers because we're on high alert. Uh, my teacher, Linda Gallion, talks about the way our fear can become oversensitized. It's like a fire alarm going off every time you light a small candle. Um, so maybe at some point it did a great job of alerting for smoke, a dangerous smoke, and at this point it's very sensitive. Um, so regardless of whether you see a real tiger or a paper tiger, uh, we can meet our fear with respect and kindness. Um, just as you're meeting your own mind as uh, we sit together right now. Uh, so I've been, uh, I've been having some garden variety anxiety recently. Um, and it's been so lovely to be able to be with it with gentleness. Uh, so in a way, my paper tiger has turned into a tiger cub. Uh, so I can just be kind uh, and be gentle with it. Um, uh, and my practice with my tiger cub uh, is just to release the storyline of the anxiety, um, the storyline that paints the picture of fear in the mind, and just feel the body. Uh, I imagine some of you have seen a little animal when it's in fear. It's so scared it shakes, like a little a dog during a fireworks show or something. Um, just a little scared, shaky animal. Um, uh, Gil Fransdahl, uh, insight teacher, uh, once said that the best thing we can do for our fear is to help it feel safe. So can we help our fear feel safe? Um, so if our fear is like that scared little animal, it just needs our love uh, to help it feel safe. So I often put my hand on my heart um, and take care of the scared one. Uh, there, there, little one, it's okay. It's okay, dear one. Just helping it feel safe. So that's something that you can practice too when you're scared, uh, when you feel fear. Um, not taking it as personally and taking good care of it. Now on the flip side, there's another way to cultivate safety, uh, to allow that uh, miscalibrated fire alarm to become less sensitive. So this goes back to Rick Hansen's work. Uh, and he has a great talk on this where he talks about how to practice with the three parts of the brain, um, the reptilian, mammalian, and human brain. So um, uh, he has a, a clever title for this talk. He calls it Pet the Lizard, Feed the Mouse, and Hug the Monkey. Uh, so this is how we relate to the different parts of the brain. Uh, he says it's a simplistic model, but it, it works. So I'll just be mentioning the first part, which is the lizard brain, or the reptilian brain, the brain stem. Um, it's what assesses for safety. So 
Um, his playful term, pet the lizard, refers to helping that part of the, the brain feel at ease. Um, and the way that you do this is by consistently noticing moments of safety in your life. So when you feel safe and at ease, don't miss those moments. Um, and usually they, they go undetected. Uh, they're not things we typically really notice. Most people typically really notice um, because it, it, uh, at times it can be a baseline. At other times, that's not so. But um, what this might look like actually in noticing them is when you feel maybe a little upwelling of anxiety, just remind yourself that it's safe enough right now, um, if that is indeed the case, and allow your breath to soothe you by taking deep breaths, um and in moments yeah in moments where anxiety isn't really present and you feel at ease uh when you're engaging in daily activities say reading a book or brushing your teeth or eating supper um just bring awareness to the fact that you're safe and that things are getting done as they need to and that things are that your system is not at risk um, so just so the practice is just recognize the moments of safety and then fully experience them for 20 or 30 seconds. Like really feel into the softening in the body. Uh, maybe there's calming or soothing presence, a sense of maybe releasing the stomach or the jaw, uh, such that actually slowly over, the over time, recognizing these moments of safety actually rewires the brain. Um, it takes a lot of repetition, um, but it actually begins to retrain the brain that there are not paper tigers everywhere. Um, so uh, the practice, when a paper tiger is present, we make the feel, we help the fear feel safe. We're kind and compassionate with it. And when fear is not present, we notice this and we fully savor. So pretty simple practice. And ultimately, of course, uh, we don't need to get rid of our fear. So the more that we learn to identify and sit with our fear, uh, when we can be patient with it, the fear can be present without, need, without us needing to be driven by it or lost in it. Um, and I think the greatest sense of safety is when we no longer need to feel threatened by fear. So that means that fear can be present, but we can cohabitate with it without wishing for anything otherwise. So maybe a radical redefinition of fearlessness with that in mind um, might be uh, to be fearless is to be able to be with fear without being afraid of it. So being fearless is to be able to be with fear without being afraid of it. This is our internal work, to be kind and patient with our fear, not asking it to go away or to stop. I don't need to get rid of my fear because I can love my fear. So. That is a little bit about our inner world, uh, a way to relate to fear internally.
I had shared that I would speak a little more about working with fear, uh, to touch on fear externally. Uh, so transitioning now to talk about how our internal world impact or our internal work impacts the world. When we are truly intimate with our fear, when we have touched the pain of our fear so carefully and closely, uh, you really would never wish this on another person, or at least that's my experience. I'd never want somebody to have to feel this way. Um, and so working with my fear can be, has become a source of compassion for others who may be feeling fear. Um, in the, the Buddha's teachings on generosity, he speaks about three main areas of generosity. Giving material gifts is one. Offering the Dharma or the Buddhist teachings is another. And the last one is giving the gift of fearlessness. Uh, so traditionally, the gift of fearlessness comes from our virtue and wisdom. If you're so upright with your virtue, virtue that is your eth ethical behavior, if your vow to not harm is your deep commitment, then in a sense, you have become a refuge for all beings. You're giving the gift of fearlessness because you're a source of safety. Um, in practicing not killing and not stealing and not engaging in sexual misconduct and not lying, um uh you're becoming a refuge and that's really what this is it's not uh these aren't rules or moralistic codes but rather just ways um uh to uh to enact our awakened mind and um, create a field of safety for others uh, and, and these precepts that I just named, like not killing, is often framed in terms of negation, like not doing something, but we can also frame them in the positive. Uh, so not, not killing can become supporting life. Same thing. Uh, and one very tangible, very practical way we can support life right now, especially in the midst of the AAPI xenophobia, is by actually doing something when we see harm happening. So actually doing something when we see harassment taking place. Now, this is a very practical external way we can respond to fear in the world. Uh, many of the residents of SFZC, of San Francisco Zen Center, recently participated in a training on interrupting AAPI harassment. Uh, and it's a free one hour training available to anyone online. Uh, it's by an organization called Hollaback, uh, and the training is their bystander intervention against AAPI harassment and xenophobia training. So I highly recommend it, and I'll put the links in the chat to, um, for you at some point for that. Um, and something I learned in the training is that uh, there are a staggering number of harassment cases where bystanders are around, but nobody, uh, but it's rare that people actually do something and intervene. Uh, the onlookers are either stunned or don't know what to do or, or are afraid to escalate the scenario or many, many other reasons people don't intervene. And I can think for myself that it's, it, that can be really scary 
to do that. Um, and yet, what I also learned is that in the aftermath of har harassment, uh, the majority of victims expressed that they wish someone had intervened. And so how, how can we do this? Um, uh, I, I always thought that bystander intervention needed to be standing up against the attacker or um, something very direct, uh, but I was really heartened to know that uh, that doesn't have to be the only way. Um, uh, and instead, I'll, I'm just briefly going to go over some of the tools that they offered. Um, and uh, not, yeah, not in a tremendous amount of depth here. Um, I'll include, a, in addition to the, the link to the training, I'll include a PDF so you can learn a little bit more about these. Um, but the, the training included talking about five Ds. Uh, so these are five different things that you can do. Uh, in response if you see harassment taking place. Um, and of course, um, before even getting to the Ds, assessing whether this feel, really feels safe for you, of course. And so the five Ds are um, delegate, document, delay, direct, and distract. Um, so if someone in the grocery store line is yelling at the cashier, uh, uh, if there's some sort of harassment going on there, um, maybe what you do is um, you distract. You engage one of the, the Ds, distract. And this is the one that stood out to me most as something, like, oh, I think I could do that. Um, and it's doing something to interrupt the harassment uh, that doesn't do anything to challenge the attacker. Um, it's like uh, you drop your drink. Um, or ask the victim uh, in the scenario for directions to the nearest BART station, or pretend you know them from your most recent online art class. Uh, so there's an intervention, but it's completely unrelated to the content of, of the harassment. And what it does is it provides for a break in the contact, the contact and can actually kind of release the hook there and allow the uh, the person to kind of get loose from that scenario or um, kind of deter or distract the um, the people who are causing the harm. So uh, um, alternatively, um, in that scenario, you might document by taking a video um, or delegate to somebody else in the grocery store line. Hey, my kids are here. Do you see what's happening over there? Would you be comfortable um, getting a manager or saying something? Uh, you might delay waiting until the event is over and then checking in with the person after the fact. Um, or it might, you might be really direct and do the D that is direct, which is actually um, saying something to the person who is causing the harm. I'm like, hey, what? Uh, what you're saying um, is it seems like it's hurt really hurting this person. Can you can you stop or something along those lines? Uh, at this point, I want to put the links in the chat before I forget. Okay, there it is. So you can learn a little bit more about those. Uh, 
I was really heartened to see that there were uh, 1,200 people at this training. And they do it every two weeks and it tends to fill up. Um, a lot of people care about this right now and I found the tools really helpful. And uh, of course, in this short talk, I, I can only say a, a little bit about a lot, a lot of things and not a lot about anything. Uh, but I do want to say one last thing about combating racism, uh, which is a bit different. Uh, and for this piece, uh, I'm speaking particularly to the people here who are white racialized. Um, and as white people, uh, it's quite common to see overt acts of racism and to think that the way to end racism is to end these overt intentional acts of prejudice um, uh, in the way that we might interrupt uh, an act of harassment. Um, and unfortunately, as uh, many of you already know, it's not that easy. Uh, racism doesn't just uh, live in the hearts of overtly self-proclaimed racists who wear white hoods or uh, tag buildings with racist words. Uh, racism actually thrives in the systemically, uh, thrives in uh, white culture, uh, systemically in our car carceral system, in our banking system, education, housing, and medical systems. So. Uh, uh, it's it's in uh, it's woven into the fabric here, and uh, and perhaps worse, well-meaning white people who wouldn't want this to happen are often benefiting from the structures of racism in our society uh, without even realizing it. So this is white privilege, right? Uh, getting into the better colleges, or getting the better jobs, or the home loans, or the health care. Um, and this privileging of white skinned people by other white people often occurs because of unseen stereotypes about people of color. So um, I want to highlight this um, because it expands the work of, it, it expands anti-racist work uh, to, to be looking at one's own mind. Um, and White people can often see these stereotypes when they look more closely. They might not identify in any way as engaging in racist behavior or racist thought patterns, but um, perhaps a very common meme is uh, the person, uh, the white person walking down the street and clutching their bag a little tighter when passing a person of color. Um, and so beneath that action might be the unseen bias that uh, POC are dangerous or criminal. And so uh, this is where that intersection of meditation practice is really useful because it allows us to see, oh, wow, wow, what fueled that action? What just fueled, caused me to do that? Um, and these biases, of course, become highly pro problematic and help sustain racism when they continue to be enacted unintentionally. Um, we see this in the carceral system where black bodied people are seven times more likely to be falsely convicted of murder than their white counterparts. That's so heartbreaking to me. Um, uh, or in a, a smaller example, just in the simple 
act of going to work, that same person who clutched their bag closer, maybe they, they work as a supervisor in hiring and they hire John, the white applicant, rather than the person of color uh, from the place of saying, well, John was just exuding trustworthiness. Um, what's going on there? So, so to explore our own minds uh, and why um, and see the ways uh, that we've been conditioned. And this is not to say if you find these thoughts that uh, you're bad or wrong, but it's um, uh, anyone who's been raised in this society, uh, in U dominant US culture, um, has had some elements of uh, story messaging uh, from media, family, or friends, or um, education, uh, textbooks um, that teaches us about race and stereotyping. So to fully address racism, we can't, um, can't just focus on eliminating overt racists, but rather white people, including myself, need to engage in anti-racist behaviors. Um, so this includes studying our own role in systemic racism, learning about privilege, the history of racism in the US, uh, the myth of meritocracy, uh, and as I was just highlighting here, studying our own implicit bias. So I uh, am not gonna unpack all of that, of course, um, but just to flag that, um, especially because I think the realm of implicit bias does have such an important overlap with meditation practice. Um, hmm. Yeah, so I, I think I'd like to close with a reminder uh, that uh, our practice is for the benefit of all beings. Uh, and sometimes it's hard to connect with that. It feels like our practice is just for our small self and we're, we're a being too, so that's okay. We're one of the beings. Um, uh, so when we're able to care for our fear to help fear feel safe, we no longer need to dominate over others to feel safe. Instead, we can meet our paper tigers with kindness and care, uh, being gentle with our fear, like caring for a frightened animal. Uh, and can we be nourished by moments of safety throughout our day, soothing the fear centers in our brain? And can we share the gift of fearlessness with the world, with our virtue, with our wisdom, and with skillful and creative responses, uh, dropping a bottle of juice, or dropping your latte, or asking someone for directions to the BART station to do something to respond to suffering. Okay, thank you for your uh, generous attention. I appreciate it. <laughs>